right. Well, good morning. If you want to start making your way in and grabbing a seat, we can jump in to Uzziah and pride and the holiness of God. That's what we'll be talking about this morning, Uzziah and pride and the holiness of God, which is you know, why I'd love to give away a book this morning by R.C. Sproul. Many of you may know of it, The Holiness of God, just a great sort of meditation and reflection on who God is, exalted in power, exalted in glory, exalted in holiness, and how that can and should affect our hearts and lives and how we relate to him. So anybody interested in a copy of The Holiness of God? Great. All right. (laughs) Thanks. Well, if you're new to this gathering this morning, we are continuing our series in the Heart of the Kings, which is a study of yeah, 12 kings of Israel and Judah, where we're focusing on one defining feature of their reigns and one attribute of God that is sort of exemplified or revealed during their reigns, and then one sort of key application for us to draw from their stories. And today we'll consider Uzziah the ninth king of the southern tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, and will consider the pride of Uzziah, the holiness of God, and the humility of the gospel. And so as we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we recognize that we are not naturally in the flesh humble people. And so we ask that you would now, by your spirit, Humble us. Give us eyes to see your glory. Give us eyes to see the exaltedness of Christ, the holiness of your character, the splendor of your majesty, to better comprehend the ugliness of our sin, the sweetness of the gospel, the beauty of your grace that is poured out upon us in Christ that you'd show us our need for you to continually, by your good hand, to be lowering us in our own eyes, exalting Jesus in our minds, that we would relate to you reverently, that we would grow in our awe of you and diminish our awe of people and our awe of ourselves. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Abraham Lincoln once said and wrote that nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And that's certainly true. Power exposes really who we are and what we are, which is why I find it peculiar that we are always so eager to get more power and why so many people in the world are eager to get more power. It's like saying, please, Lord, show the whole world just how wretched I am. Because that's what power does. It gives an opportunity to expose the worst of us. Is this feedback? Is this loud to you, the, rec- the microphone? I'm getting a little bit of feedback. I don't know if we need to tone it down a little bit. But. And so, yeah, just the idea that, okay, I want more power is an invitation to be tested in our character. It's an invitation to see the worst of ourselves come out. As Lincoln's quite right, though we tend to forget just how right he is, that each of us think that we can handle power and success. 
Just give me more power, more success, I'll be fine. We tend to think that failure and hardship and weakness are bad for us. That's just how we tend to think about it. Strength and wealth are good for us. If we just had more money, we'd be okay. If we just had more authority, more power, we'd be able to fix our lives, make the world right. If only I could be president or the people I think should be president. If only I could have power in Congress. If only I could control more. We're just easily deceived. This is why we need the Word of God and the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to remind us that prosperity and humility rarely go together in the human heart. Rarely. It's a strange thing. Scripture warns, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In the reign of Uzziah, if it teaches us anything, it teaches us that very truth. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. That through his life we will see success and power lead to pride, and then his pride will collide head-on with the holiness of God. And the holiness of God will prevail. As Scripture says to us, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5.5, James 4.6. Not many passages of the Old Testament are quoted multiple times in the New. That's one of them. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so though Uzziah's soul is secure, saved by the grace of God through faith, he will die slowly and tragically and publicly as a leper so that God can make a point. And here's our point for this morning, that no matter how the Lord prospers our lives, let us make much of the holiness of God. No matter how much the Lord prospers our lives, how much wealth he gives us, how much power he gives us, how much prosperity he gives us, let us always pray to make much of the holiness of God so that we would always approach him humbly through faith in Christ. No matter how the Lord prospers our lives, let us make much of the holiness of God that we would always approach him humbly through Christ. And so we'll look at the pride of Uzziah, the holiness of God, and the humility of the gospel. The pride of Uzziah. Well, the father of Uzziah was Amaziah, according to 2 Chronicles 25. And according to 2 Chronicles 25 too, this is how Amaziah's reign was summarized. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. In other words, in his final years, Uzziah's father, Amaziah, will sponsor idolatry, and the Lord will put him to death because of it. And then in 2 Chronicles 26, if you want to turn there with me, 2 Chronicles 26, this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. 2 Chronicles 26, verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, and he's called Azariah in 2 Kings 15, who was 16 years old and made him king of, instead of his father, Amaziah. And he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king, that is his father, slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. Can you imagine that, being 16 and coming to the throne of Judah? And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. 
His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him, notice the phrase, in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But almost 50 years of faithful, fruitful rule. Verses 6 through 15 there are going to list a number of his accomplishments. Military victories in verses 6 through 8. Economic development in verses 9 through 10. A growing force of elite soldiers in verses 11 through 14. Even the manufacture of cutting-edge machinery. Notice that in verse 15. So that according to verses 8 and 15, it says, His fame spread. His fame spread throughout the whole world. And he grew strong because, verse 7, God helped him. Verse 15, he was marvelously helped. In other words, he became what most of us dream about becoming, right? Great. Mighty. So what if you could have 2 Chronicles 26, 1 through 15? What if that could be your life? All that success. Marvelously helped by God. Prosperous. Powerful. But what if you know verse 16 would then define how you finished your life? Would you still then want the first 15 verses? If you knew this is what would happen next. Verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense but when he was strong he grew proud to his destruction what's scary about those words is just how true they are just how often and deeply they apply to all of us grow strong grow proud to our destruction Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We're never above that truth. Uzziah was certainly not above that truth. Notice the form it's going to take in his life. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, who gets to do that? Priests. Remember, he's a king. He's not a priest. So the altar of incense stood in the holy place, right outside the Holy of Holies. A qualified priest burnt incense every morning and at twilight as an offering, a kind of symbol of the prayers of the people being lifted to God. The priest served as a kind of intercessor, the one who would offer this offering of incense and aroma to symbolize the offering of prayer to a holy God on behalf of his people. A specific prayer offered by a specific person at a specific time in a specific way. And that priest is going to offer it on behalf of the nation. And so he was a kind of mediator, an intercessor. And in the pride and success of Uzziah, He thought he'd reached a point in his life where he could just kind of mosey on into the temple and offer a little incense on the altar. That's what he thought. God is so for me. He's so with me. 
I'm so great, so pleasing to him, so prosperous, that I can just go in and do what only the priest is allowed to do. I think it's worth asking, how do we get there? How do we get to that point where we feel we can do almost anything and God would be pleased with it? Let's look at it. Number one, pride makes us think more highly of ourselves than we ought. That's the first way this happens. The more attractive we become to the world, oftentimes the more attractive we become to ourselves. And the more attractive we become to ourselves, the more attractive we assume we are to God. The more wealth we accrue, the more power we obtain, the more glory we amass, the more education we achieve, the more spiritual accomplishments we rack up, even the more theological knowledge that we amass for ourselves, the more messages we receive about our greatness, the more vulnerable we become to this kind of pride. To think high thoughts of ourselves, frequent thoughts of ourselves, entitled thoughts of ourselves, to where we just get to a point in life where we feel like we occupy an entirely new kind of category of human being with special privileges and special freedoms. Pride makes us think we deserve better than whatever we have been given. A better body, better family upbringing, a better job, a more respect, marriage or a better marriage, a better spouse, better children, better treatment from others, better seat on the airplane, better vacations, more rewards for our hard work which then makes us feel more entitled to better circumstances, entitled to discontentment, entitled to not being thankful, entitled to jealousy, entitled to envy, entitled to bitterness, entitled to self-pity, entitled to drugs and alcohol and porn and nice food and being selfish, entitled to fill in the blank. Pride makes us feel entitled to anything we feel like we want or we need. Pride makes us think we are above trouble and rules and limits. Like people in front of us at the store, cars in front of us on the road, job loss, financial loss, disrespect, inconvenience. Or worst of all, any sentence that begins with the words, thou shalt not. Pride hates those words. Pride finds a way to get above those words, to make certain parts of God's word just not apply to us anymore. It's sneaky. It's worth asking those who know you best, do you see any areas of my life where I don't feel the word of God applies to me anymore? Do you see areas of my life where I look entitled? I look like I I feel entitled to complain. Entitled to grumble, entitled to be discontent, entitled to be jealous, entitled to think I, I deserve better than whatever it is. But again, most coveting and envy and so much conflict in relationships begins with I deserve better than whatever this is. Pride makes us magnify our righteousness, minimize our sin. And therefore feel quite justified thinking and feeling and doing and saying just about whatever we want. Even approaching God without a mediator. And I think we can be especially vulnerable to that as we get older. 
We feel like we've paid our dues, we've put in the time, we've walked the road, we've endured a lot of affliction, and we've just reached a certain kind of age where we're free to say whatever we want and do whatever we want. Even approach God without a mediator. But that's not all. Pride also makes us think more lowly of God than we ought. Pride makes us think more highly of ourselves, more lowly of God, that if we're not careful, we can wrongly interpret the help that God gives and the prosperity that he brings and the achievements that he brings into our lives, not as unmerited blessings of God's grace, but well-deserved rewards. Things were owed. As if God no longer finds our sin offensive. As if God could no longer find our sin offensive. We start thinking that he sees everything the way we see it. That he sees us the way we see ourselves. We start thinking his character is not so different than our character. That his thoughts are not so above our thoughts. That his ways are not so above our ways. So Uzziah was right to assume that God is patient. He's right to assume that the Lord is with him. Right to assume the Lord is for him. Right to believe in the grace of God. Right to believe in the love of God and the compassion of God. He's right to believe all those things, but he's wrong to get casual and sloppy with God. As if we can just mosey on in to the presence of God. Flippant, casual, pointing at everybody in the room, high fives, sort of walk on up to God and just give him a slap on the thigh. What's up, man? And the angels are like, whoa, who's this dude? And the problem isn't, we're not his children, we're not welcome, we're not beloved. It's just it's different when we cross that line and now we're equal or casual or flippant or sloppy with his holiness. As if we can live with a king's ex, as if God's grace freed him to approach however he pleased. So we would think, I can just approach God on my own. Without help, without a priest, without a mediator, without a savior. So somehow along the way, in all his prosperity, he lost his awe of God. He lost his reverence for God. He lost that fear of God that Zechariah the priest had taught him. Which means he was not spending much quality time in the presence of God. Which is why if you see pride in my life as a pastor or elder, casualness with God, flippancy with God, condescension in my words, arrogance in the way I relate to God or others, what you can safely assume is that I'm not spending much quality time with God. That I'm not spending much quality time in the presence of God. Because spending time in the presence of God humbles us. Spending time rightly seeing him through his word lowers us, just skewers our pride. The closer that he draws us in, the farther our sense of his holiness should expand. Which is what brings us to the next point, the holiness of God. Verse 17, God's going to send Azariah the priest and 80 other priests of the Lord into the room to help Uzziah remember the holiness of God. Verse 17, 
But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Which is where we see the fact that somehow Uzziah, this would honor God. He, not just that he thought it was okay, but he thought it would actually be pleasing to God. You know what? God's so with me. He's so for me. He's so blessed me. Man, this will make his day. He think this will be great if I just come in and burn a little incense on the altar. Now Ezra's like, nah. You're not consecrated to do this. You're not a priest. You don't descend from Aaron. This, you will get no honor from God stepping outside the bounds of what your role is. Approaching God without a priest, without a mediator, without somebody in the middle who's actually consecrated to do this. That Uzziah felt so above the law that he even thought the Lord would honor him for doing this. That's how delusional we can get in our pride. I mean, really delusional. That we can come to God with something that's so unattractive and so unbecoming and thinks he just thinks is the greatest thing ever. Like our righteousness. What does Isaiah say that our self-righteousness is to God? Filthy rags. We just walk in with our righteousness and we're like, God, check this out. We think we're bringing like this beautiful golden trophy. What God sees is menstrual garments. Like defiled cloth. That's what the actual wording is of Isaiah. And praise God for Azariah and these priests who show that they fear the Lord more than the king. That they fear the Lord more than their position. That they fear the Lord more than a politician. Because, yeah, they come in with their 80 guys, but Uzziah's got an elite force of soldiers we just saw. He's got a whole army that's powerful. And so what a great example even of how, yeah, God's people are meant to be so in awe of God, so in awe of the holiness of God, that we're not captivated by powerful people. That's why it's always concerning when you see Christian leaders just sort of moseying up a little bit too close sometimes to politicians. Losing their awe of God. Losing their sense of who they actually represent, which isn't presidents which isn't congressmen or women. But God is who we represent, is who we speak for. So it doesn't mean we don't honor kings. We honor kings, Scripture tells us to. We pray for kings. We honor them as appointed by God. We just need to remember the difference between them and God and what it means to actually honor God and retain our awe of God so that when the moment comes when we have to stand toe-to-toe with a king, we're able to. Lazariah does that. Now, the Lord would have been entirely justified just killing Uzziah on the spot. So it's a massive kindness that he's going to send this warning. This warning from God. That's our next point there. Because in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, listen to this. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. These were consecrated priests 
who were supposed to approach God and supposed to give him offering, but they do it wrongly and irreverently, and the Lord consume them right there on the spot. And so it's a huge kindness of the Lord that he would send Azariah and 80 priests in to confront Uzziah to warn him, to give him an opportunity to repent and to get out. It's a loving act of Azariah as well. That's why each of us should praise God for faithful friends who are willing to reprove us. Wise friends who are willing to bring the word of God into our lives and show us where we're walking out of step with the Spirit, out of step with the counsel of Scripture, head on into a storm, head on into the judgment of God where we're living irreverently or foolishly. Praise God that when he would bring friends around us who would actually confront these things. And what a lesson for us to make sure to surround ourselves with those kinds of friends. That usually if somebody, you know, a friend like confronts you in your sin, do you go, wow, I really want to keep them around? Or are you tempted to get rid of them? Do you get so embarrassed or so humiliated or so angry or so bitter or so how dare they? Like, okay, I'm not hanging out with them anymore. When it should absolutely be the opposite. Like when they bring the word of God graciously, kindly, but truthfully speaking the truth and confronting sin in our life, that's somebody you want on speed dial. That's somebody you want close. That's somebody who God is going to use to sanctify you, grow you, and keep you from destroying yourself. That's what they're coming in to do. David prayed in Psalm 141.5, Let the righteous strike me. It is a kindness. Let him reprove me. It is oil upon my head. Let not my head refuse it. What a great prayer. Well, the righteous men come to reprove Uzziah. I think, what will he do? Here's the moment. Here's the opportunity. Verse 19. Then Uzziah was angry. Uzziah was angry. I tell you, if I become angry when people confront me in my sin, then something is terribly wrong. Because sin is one thing. Blatant, hard-hearted, angry, unrepentance is a whole other thing. We all sin. We all struggle. We all fall to temptations. We all are weak. We're not in glory yet. The Christian life, it's a hard road, so we're going to stumble and fall at many times. There's, there's a way out from that. But unrepentance, hard-hearted refusal to hear wise counsel, stubborn rejection of the word of God brought to us by the people of God signals a deeper kind of problem. And it really is the road to destruction. And as a church, we should never become angry when brothers and sisters in Christ share concern for our souls. I'm not talking about judgmentalism. I'm not talking about picking each other to death. I'm not talking about noticing every little flaw and critiquing it all the time. But as a whole, as a church, that we see things that, okay, that could destroy this brother or sister. This could wreck shop on their relationship to God. And in love, I want to come to them and humbly and graciously and patiently speak truth and love to them to help them see. Or someone does that with me. It's a kindness. 
Because the Lord's not going to like physically appear to you and confront you. Like that's often what we're waiting for, right? Like Jesus to show up on earth again, even though he's at the right hand, he sort of already came in his first ascension. We're thinking, okay, he's going to come back, just show up or send an angel visible, tangible, audible, and tell me where I'm wrong. No, he'll send people that we are the body of Christ. That's who he'll send. So here the Lord's going to give Uzziah the opportunity to repent. And not only did he reject it, he became angry. In other words, even the counsel of the priests were beneath him. Even the high priest is beneath him. So we should realize that Azariah here and these priests, they're not just making rules up. They're confronting Uzziah with the word of God, Exodus 30 in particular, where God's going to say in Exodus 30, here's who gets to offer incense. Here's when, here's how, here's why. So Azariah, they're not coming with just rules that they made up. They're not coming with traditions. They're coming with the word of God. It is not for you, Uzziah, to do this, but only for the priests, the sons of Aaron who have been consecrated to do it, Exodus 30. And Uzziah is going to scorn it. The word of God, the priests of God, all of it beneath him. Pride does that. And so God is going to show his worthiness in the verses to follow. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. In the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Make sure to tell you with who? Where? Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. All of a sudden, he's in a hurry to get out. All of a sudden, he grasps the seriousness of what's going on. He had an opportunity to repent, and he got angry, and the Lord struck him. Again, a mercy. Because in number 16, when you get Korah's rebellion, Korah and Dathan and Abiram, they're going to rebel against Moses, arguing that the whole congregation is holy. The whole congregation is free to approach the Lord with censers full of fire and incense, however they please. And the earth split open and swallowed them all up in a moment. Fire came from the Lord and destroyed 250 men who were offering incense. The censers that they were carrying were collected, hammered into plates, and put on the altar as a testimony, as a statement, a sign to the people. So again, this is a mercy that fire didn't come out right here and just consume Uzziah, but rather leprosy breaks out on his forehead. Even that is significant. Because according to Exodus 28, 35 through 38, the high priest wore a turban. And attached to that turban was this pure gold plate that was hanging at his forehead. You know what was engraved on that plate? Any of you remember? Turban, gold plate, and there were words written on it. Remember what were written there? Holy to the Lord. That's what was written. That's what Uzziah is looking at when leprosy breaks out on his forehead. Here's the priest, the chief priest, with a plate, holy to the Lord. 
And he's there trying to play priest. And God strikes him on the forehead with leprosy. That's part of the message. He's accepted. You're not accepted. He's who I put in place. You don't get to do this. You're not accepted. This is unclean. The appointed high priest is accepted. Uzziah is struck. Now he's in a hurry to get out. So this side of heaven, there is always time to repent. Praise God. There's always opportunities to repent. It's never too late to come to Christ, to turn from your sin, to look to him, to be forgiven, to be received, to be secure. But sometimes it is too late to escape the consequences of decisions we've made, the consequences of the road that we've chosen, the consequences of refusing the biblical counsel that the Lord sends us. In other words, our next refusal may be our last before the consequences really come due. That's not shaming or spiteful by God. It's just sometimes we cross the line and, okay, there's consequences that now we carry for the rest of our lives. Uzziah will, verse 21. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. After 50 years of faithful rule, after 50 years of walking with the Lord, this is how his life will end. Pride is so costly. It gives you this little flame of glory, and then it burns your house to the ground. By going beyond what the Lord allowed, Refusing correction. Notice how Uzziah is even going to lose the privileges he did have before this day. He's not even allowed in the house of the Lord anymore. Not even allowed to go with the congregation to worship. Not even allowed to be there with the people hearing the word of God proclaimed. What privileges he had that were given to him by God, he lost. Because now he's a leper. No more joining in corporate worship. He will hear their singing from a distance, from over the wall, separate. He will smell the sacrifices from behind the walls of his house, like smelling a neighbor's steaks grilling, knowing that you're not going to be able to participate. You smell it, but you're like, you're never going to taste it. Pride is so costly. When Adam and Eve are going to eat the tree or eat the fruit from the one forbidden tree, they're going to lose all the other trees as well. All the ones that they were free to eat freely from. Remember? The whole Garden of Eden. Of all the trees you may eat freely, just not this one. Well, they ate from the one, and not only did they lose that tree, they lost all of them. Banished from the garden. Pride is costly. And that really is the devil's craft. That is his scheme. He'll give you one sin and then take everything in return. It's never worth it. And we've all experienced this in one form or another. Right? Just how much we've lost to pride. You can probably think of moments in pride where you've said something really strong, really harsh, feeling entirely justified saying it, feeling, feeling entirely satisfied when those words come out of our mouth, only to watch that relationship just crumble before our eyes. To watch whatever that circumstance just erupt into flames. 
And Uzziah will lose a lot due to pride. Second Chronicles 26, 21, And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, wrote, And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. This will be the last words written about him. He is a leper. Though God loved Uzziah, he would not give his glory to Uzziah. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. And Isaiah prophesied in the days of Uzziah. I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. So there's a valuable lesson there for all of us. And there is one person we know took it pretty strongly to heart, and that is Isaiah. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is going to take it to heart. Because the Lord will use Uzziah to prove his holiness to a watching world, which is often his point. And it's going to affect Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Notice how the chapter starts. What does it say? In the year that King Uzziah died. It's important context. This is what is on Isaiah's mind. Uzziah just died. And Isaiah knows why he just died. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook with the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here Isaiah is going to experience the presence of God. Whether he's caught up in body to the presence of God or his spirit, whatever it is, he's getting the full experience of the presence of God. Not in an earthly temple, but in the heavenly temple. He's not looking at copies, but the real thing. He's not hearing an earthly choir singing, but an angelic choir declaring the perfect holiness of God perpetually. And he's not looking at golden images of seraphim, but real seraphim flying around, six wings. With two, they cover their eyes to symbolize the holiness of the person that is before them. With two, they cover their feet as a symbol of the holiness of the place. With two, they perpetually fly as a symbol of the constant reverence and awe for God that is due. And just crying out, holy, holy, holy. 
And what he smells is not incense from an earthly temple from a distant courtyard, but the very smoke that fills the heavenly temple, the very robe of God. And the whole thing is shaking, trembling in awe of God. Yeah, when the foundations of the heavenly temple tremble at the thought of God, when angels, who if we saw one, by the way, we like people in scripture, we would hit the ground paralyzed in fear. And there's a whole multitude of them here. And they're in awe of God. And they fear him. And they revere him. He's not imagining the sight of God. He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And so if Uzziah was struck a leper for entering the earthly holy place and burning earthly incense on an earthly altar, then Isaiah knows, woe is me. I'm a dead man. I've seen the king and I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, why does he believe this? Well, because he knows who he is, a man of unclean lips. He knows where he dwells among a people of unclean lips. I love that, that living around sinners does not make Isaiah feel better about himself. It makes him feel worse. How many of us try to make ourselves feel better by looking at how sinful other people are? Yeah, it doesn't help Isaiah. Seeing the sinfulness of others only reminds him how sinful he is. That's the effect it has. Because you know, among the people of Israel, Isaiah probably looks pretty good. I mean, this is a dude who's pretty faithful to the Lord. This is a prophet of God, one of the great prophets of God. He could probably look around all day and go, you know what? I'm doing okay. That's not how he looks at it. When you're in the presence of God, all you know is you're a sinner. And the fact that you live around other sinners doesn't make you feel better. It just reminds you how big a sinner you are. And how much you belong to the people who are also sinners all around you. He knows who sits enthroned before him. The king, he calls him. The Lord of hosts. How can I be here and live? That's his conclusion. How can I be here and live? Being honest about our sinfulness. Being honest about the sinfulness of the people among whom we live. Being honest about the holiness of the God who created us just humbles us. Just thrashes our pride. We realize we are doomed. Our only hope is mercy. Our only hope is grace. Our only hope is the steadfast love of God doing something to make us in right standing before him. Isaiah 6, 6, look at the next verse. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tongs from the, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Isn't that great? Notice how God or the angels don't say, Oh, Isaiah, come on, dude. Seriously, you're, you're, you're not that bad. That's not what he says. There's no sort of minimizing this. It's, no, we're going to provide an atonement. Now, I don't think right here in this context, this is directly talking about Isaiah's salvation. Based on the rest of the chapter, I think it's talking about Isaiah's consecration for the task of preaching God's word. The task of preaching his word to the whole nation. I think there are parallels, there's correlates to our salvation. 
But we do need the help of the Lord to see our sinfulness in the, in the presence of his holiness. And so I think that the connection to our salvation is also really clear. God has to provide the atonement. God has to provide a righteousness that we don't bring. God has to remove our guilt somehow. We can't do it. We need him to take away our guilt. We need him to atone for our sin, which brings then to this final point, the humility of the gospel. That what the gospel does is announce the way for humble sinners to draw near to God and be saved. Notice that's one of the big questions of the whole Bible is how can sinners approach a holy God? Right? It's one of the big questions that the gospel answers for us. How can sinners be reconciled to God? How can sinners be in right standing before this holy God? How can sinners be redeemed? So the gospel announces that news. And amazingly, the way God provides it is by the humility of God. Listen to this in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning clung to and never given up, but emptied himself of what? Of all that heavenly glory. Because remember, at the time where Isaiah's up there, who's present? The Son of God is there, receiving all that worship, receiving all that holy, 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 receiving what that, that awe and reverence that is due to him. Well, he emptied himself of that. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, like Uzziah king from the tribe of Judah. But unlike Uzziah, he has a right to serve as priest. But not because he's a Levite. Rather, according to Hebrews, because of his indestructible life. That's why he gets it. He is the king of kings and the great high priest. Because he is the son of God. Unlike Uzziah, also, he became humble. Uzziah was down here and tried to go up here. The son of God was up here and came down here. To bring sinners back to the glory of God. Though he was rich, he became poor. Though he was exalted, he lowered himself. Taking the form of a man, living a sinless life, and then dying in the place of sinners on a cross. Hebrews 9 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then though through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's what Uzziah forgot about. You don't climb your way to God. You don't become prosperous and wealthy and powerful and think, you know what? I'll play my own priest. I'll bring my own offering that will be pleasing to God. No, no, God has to come down. The Son of God has to come as a high priest. 
And he has to do the offering for you. He has to represent you. He has to shed his own blood as an atonement for your sin. Then we come. And praise God, we get to come. That God is able to bring us near. He's able to forgive us, to deal with us forever without once compromising the holiness of his character. That's the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Because Christ paid for our sin. Because Christ satisfied the wrath of God. Because Christ purifies us from unrighteousness. Because Christ provides for us his righteousness. So that we can actually stand before God the Father as forgiven children. And he go, well done, good and faithful servant. And what the humble do is the humble hear that news and rejoice. The proud scorn it. The proud are like, I don't want it given to me by grace. I want to achieve it. I want to earn it. I want to deserve it. Now, the humble hear that and rejoice. The humble never try to approach God on their own merit. The humble don't feel worthy in and of themselves, which is why when they hear the gospel and believe it, they gladly approach God through Jesus. They gladly come to him through this faithful high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The humble will now, Hebrews 4, 16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's how salvation works. That's how sinners get to approach a holy God is in Christ. And they're received, forgiven, adopted, secured. They rejoice, they worship, and they never lose their awe of God. Or rather, in those moments we do, we repent. And then we pray, Lord, keep teaching me awe of you, reverence for you. I'll never forget uh, the testimony uh, of a man who was part of a church that was at some years ago who was a professional bodybuilder and a highly successful businessman. Successful business and a professional bodybuilder. Kind of the, dis- the definition of successful and mighty in the world. Like he was on all those Mr. Olympus stuff, those stages. Like he was part of that. And a friend had shared the gospel with him multiple times over a various number of years, and he just rejected it. Didn't need it, didn't believe in it, had everything he needed. One day he was walking to the mailbox, opened the mailbox, pulled out mail, was standing there looking at it, and then felt his body begin to seize up, and he collapsed. And a neighbor saw it and immediately called 911. The ambulance gets there, and he had, his body had gone into shock, and they had to treat him there, rush him to the hospital, pump a bunch of steroids and everything into him, saved his life. And then they determined the source, that what they found is he had been bitten by an ant on his shoulder, on his way out to the mailbox. An ant bit him and almost killed him. It got his attention. And it wasn't many weeks after that that he trusted Christ and repented and believed. And, and it's part of his testimony of just, yeah, here's what I was, here's, here's my before, here's my picture of me, all this kind of stuff, and then a picture, then a picture of an ant. Here's what God used me, used to get me. Just bring me right down. Like, you think you're great. I'll kill you with an ant. 
Humility really is a gift from God. A gift he uses to bring us to Christ. A gift he uses to conform us to Christ. A gift he uses to keep us tethered to Christ, to show us our need for Christ, to keep us dependent upon Christ. The gospel really is a message of, about the humility of Christ, delivering salvation to a humble people. That's why the first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, who see their need, who don't scorn their need, but bring that need to Christ. And in days of prosperity of Christians, we need humility more than ever. And what usually is the case is God doesn't usually just zap us with it. We could pray for that, right? Lord, just zap me with humility. No, he cultivates it. He develops it. He grows it. How? Through trials, through pain, through his word, through his spirit, through his people, through conflict, through difficulty. The Apostle Paul certainly knew this. He was caught up to the third heaven where we believe Isaiah was and saw things there that probably Isaiah saw, that things that Paul said, I can't tell you what was there. They're true magnificent, too great. And then though he didn't know it at the time, that was going to tempt him to be proud. So listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, which really says something, because in the previous chapter, he lists all the different ways that he suffered, like all the different ways he's been beaten, he's been thrown in prison, he's been shipwrecked, he's been whipped. And you don't see Paul ever praying that God would take all that away. So whatever this thorn is, it's bad. It's painful. And three times he pleads with the Lord that it would leave. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's God's answer. Take it away? No. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace will sustain you. My grace will strengthen you. My grace will keep you. Because my power is going to be perfected in your weakness. In your weakness is how I'm going to grow you. In your weakness is how I'm going to conform you to Christ. In your weakness is how I'm going to sanctify you in the truth. What's Paul's response? Well, next verse, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. What a great statement. Oh, really? This is how you're going to conform me to Christ? This is how you're going to perfect me unto glory? Well, then give me two. That's what it's going to take. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. I wonder, are we content with weaknesses? With insults? With hardships? With persecutions? With calamities? So that when we're weak, Christ makes us strong. So Paul came to realize that this hardship was the love of God in action in his life. 
To have a thorn of afflictions is better than having a heart of conceit. Do we believe that? To have thorns of affliction is better than having a heart of pride. To have a messenger of Satan torment us is better than having pride destroy us. Again, do we believe that? And when suffering and heartache and difficulty come, do we count it all joy? Because we know these trials God will use to develop our faith. These trials God will use to conform us to the image of his son. To be weak is better than to be strong. Because when we're weak, we are forced to depend upon the grace of God. We are forced to stay close to Christ. We are forced to just feed upon his word and stay close to his people. And that is good for us. We've got time for any comments or questions or thoughts just in reflection to this this morning. And yeah, Michael. Yeah, good question. So the question is, you know, we see here in Uzziah this sort of self-exalting, sort of arrogant pride. But then we talked last week about other kinds of pride like self-pity, self-loathing, self-deprecation. And is, do we battle those in the same way? And I think the answer is yes. I think we battle those firstly by spending time in the presence of God, in Christ, in his word, where there our arrogant pride is humbled. In the self-pitying, self-absorbed pride is thrashed because we see, okay, we're received by grace. We're beloved by God. It's not about our worth. It's not about our merit. It's about his steadfast love and mercy. And so the gospel, when we were in the word of God and in the presence of God and fixing our eyes on Christ, thrashes both arrogance and self-pity. Because it'll make you both humble and thankful. It'll bring us low and it will lift us up in a kind of awe and worship toward God. Um, And so I think in many ways the gospel deals with both of those ditches that we could fall into. Other thoughts, comments, questions? All right, let me pray for us.